Alabama, I would say that this is one of the most important springs of the Nick Saban tenure. To get back to running the football, to get back to creating an edge along the line of scrimmage, and to identify playmakers on defense that could potentially take over the game. So very excited about this spring for Alabama. I think the urgency should be at an all-time high, knowing that they could definitely, if they can get back to doing what they've done in the past, they'll be in the mix for yet another national championship. Hello and welcome in. We hope that the spring is officially treating you well. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, today is like the official start of spring. It's Monday, March 20th, and we hope that wherever you're consuming the show, you're enjoying it. That's for sure. I'm Greg McElroy. Along with me, as always, is Jack Foster and Mark Kubiak. We have a bunch of different teams to get to today as spring season continues to roll along. We have a bunch of teams all over the globe that we're trying to hit. And we even have a question about a game being played in Dublin, Ireland. We'll talk about that here a little bit later. But Texas A&M, Syracuse, Oklahoma State, UCF, Alabama, West Virginia, all those teams are officially getting underway with their spring practices. We'll talk about a few keys for each team, a couple of notable changes, a couple of notable competitions, maybe a new coordinator or two for some of these teams. So a lot that we need to get to here over the course of the next 30 minutes on Always College Football. So let's not waste any additional time. Let's get down to it. Let's talk about it. All right. The Aggies of Texas A&M officially taking the field Today, so many questions abound after last year's disappointing five and seven. Remember, this was a team that everyone thought could maybe crash the playoff, could challenge Alabama in the SEC West, maybe find their way to Atlanta for the SEC championship game, but they fell flat. Inconsistencies abound. Quarterback inconsistencies, benching quarterbacks, multiple guys playing, key injuries, challenges both offensively and defensively, and then in unbelievably frustrating fashion, putting it all together in the final week of the season to knock off the eventual SEC West champion in the LSU Tigers. They could have just played like that. What could the year have looked like? But we all know some key faces return for the Aggies. You got Connor Wigman. He'll be back under center, of course, engulfed in a quarterback competition like they always are, but he should be the guy based on how he performed down the stretch last year. Anaya Smith, he decided after the injury against Arkansas at the midway point, was out the rest of the year, he decided that he needed to come back, and what a coup that was for Jimbo Fisher and his staff, one of the more versatile options in the SEC deciding to return, and he will be an all-points bulletin player for every defensive coordinator that he sees this year. Other guys of significance, Evan Stewart and Moose Muhammad, bring back what might be one of the more explosive weapons, dynamic duos in the SEC at wide receiver spots. So the weapons are significant for the Aggies. The problem is the chemistry, and for, I guess, I guess a lot of it was just youth and inexperience. And if you talk to Jimbo Fisher at any point last year, he goes, man, I know that people don't want to hear it. And and by the way, none of us did. None of us wanted to hear it, but it was the truth. I mean, they were very young across the board. I remember we actually called that LSU A&M game. And you look just line by line, starter by starter, how many sophomores and freshmen were playing pivotal roles for the Aggies last year. Now, it's not not an excuse. Not trying to sit here and say they should be okay with the inconsistencies of last year, 
But talking about a team that at one point lost six games in a row and uh, a handful of what was the most decorated recruiting class in recent history, a handful of guys decided to either leave the program or they got in trouble. I mean, it's just been a bit of a challenging year. So Jimbo Fisher gets to take the young nucleus, though, that remained in College Station and move forward with them. They will have a good, solid core of young players that did some nice things down the stretch. They have a new offensive coordinator, and perhaps maybe the most intriguing hire in the SEC this past year was Bobby Petrino. Bobby Petrino, of course, formerly of Louisville, formerly of Arkansas, formerly of the NFL. He was at UNLV, but decided to head to College Station where he will ultimately call the plays for this offense. Now, what does this mean? Uh, I'm not sure any of us at this point know exactly what the dynamics going to be like between Jimbo Fisher and Bobby Petrino. Jimbo Fisher has always wanted to be a part of the play calling. That's why he was a head coach. That's why he became a great offensive coordinator. That's why he's had success over the course of his career. He's a really good offensive mind. But some of the things they've done in the past, I think it's probably a little bit challenging. It's a little bit more compli complicated, the offense that they run. And maybe it just needs to be infused with some new ideas. That's where Bobby Petrino comes in. How much will Jimbo Fisher meddle in what Bobby Petrino wants to do offensively? I don't think he's going to meddle that much, to be honest with you. I think you go out and you hire a guy like Bobby Petrino, you're not going to tell him what he can and can't do. Now, you might give some advice. Maybe you say, I see this. I see that. Why don't you try this? Sure. You might make some suggestions, but are you ultimately going to bring a guy in that has that many skins on the wall to call plays and then not let him do his job? I have a hard time envisioning that. So what will Bobby Petrino do here in spring number one there in College Station? They also went out and they got a couple of key pieces. Tony Grimes from North Carolina, a former five-star recruit who played the last three seasons with the Tar Heels. He's going to be out there at corner. A couple other pieces as well. You got the freshman running back, Ruben Owens, who might step right in. Everyone's kind of wondering, hey, now that Devon A. Chain is gone, who's going to be that go-to guy, that bell cow back there in the backfield? Maybe Ruben Owens can be that guy on day number one. But man, this is a fascinating, fascinating 15 practices to watch for the Aggies because I really believe they have the talent to win double-digit games. But I also believe that if that talent goes sideways a little bit like it did last year and they could struggle again to get to a bowl game, the conference and their division specifically is just that difficult. All right. Bold prediction for Texas A&M. They will fail to reach double-digit wins. I'm not going to say that's bold. I, I think that that's probably about right. I think 8-4, and 9-3 and three would be a little bit more. I'd feel a little better about predicting that outcome. You look at the games, the matchups. You obviously have to go to Baton Rouge. You have to go, uh, you welcome Alabama to your place. Um, you have a non-conference game uh, in Miami. Uh, you're at Tennessee. I mean, they just have a very difficult schedule. You're at, uh, you know, you're, you're just, I mean, you have, just have a tough game. So a, a tough stretch. So I, I look at them, Arkansas on a neutral site, always tricky. It's just, there are no... Without a doubt, no-brainer, slam dunk, that's a guaranteed W for Texas A&M. You know, I mean, there's a handful, of course, naturally. Like, we know that. But there's also a team that lost a home to Appalachia State last year. I mean, they had some inconsistencies, to say the least. So uh, I would say no to double digits, 
But I would say yes to bowl eligibility. I probably have them at this point of my evaluation. And hey, things could change drastically. If I go out and watch the spring game and Connor Wigman's dialed in, I could see them win an eight or nine. But to expect double digits with the inconsistencies of last year based on what we saw last year, that to me is a little bit a little bit too aggressive as far as their improvement is concerned in my eyes. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results. Fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to Constant Contact's best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Tackle any challenge with Constant Contact's expert live customer support. Plus, everything's backed by their 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any 8-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature 8-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Also taking the field today, the Syracuse Orange, who lost five different assistants of last year's coaching staff. They also went out and brought in a bunch of guys that might be kind of aiding in the transition. We're not exactly sure what schemes are going to look like. We don't know anything else. But we do know this. Garrett Schrader, their starting quarterback, a guy that they were expecting to put an awful lot on his shoulders, he's going to be out for the spring. That's after he had a successful procedure on his right arm. So unfortunate that he won't be available to try to get comfortable now with the new offense and try to figure things out. Now, they did a pretty good job. They did a pretty good job as being able to identify what they needed to fix. So they went out and they hired Rocky Long to replace Tony White as the defensive coordinator. I mean, obviously that 3-3-5 defense that they had success with last year White learned that offense from Rocky Long. So now Dino Babers went out and he said, man, I need to go and get the best guy available. He tries to go after Rocky Long, gets him, and now he'll be in charge of trying to revamp and continue some of the positive strides made by the defense last year. They also had some significant additions from the transfer portal. If you look at it, they go out and they get an immediate difference maker at corner Jaden Gold from Nebraska. They go out and get another corner, Jaden Bellamy from Notre Dame. They were high school teammates, I might add. So they're all kind of regrouping under the same umbrella. You go out and you knew you had to replace a couple of key pieces, but they get that transfer Braylon Ingram from Alabama as well. 
maybe he could be an immediate difference maker for the orange defense that at times struggled at all three levels. So I look at this orange team and I look at the ACC. Syracuse, I think, obviously, first half of the season last year, terrific. Second half of the season, not so much. They're going to have to get off to a really good start again if they're going to recreate the successes of the 22 season. Moving on now to Stillwater, Oklahoma, where the Pokes of Oklahoma State will be taking the field. Such a different looking team from a year ago. You're without quarterback Spencer Sanders. You're without your leading rusher and Dominic Richardson. Four of the last five or four of the top five wide receivers from last year also are gone. And you lose some key defensive standouts in Mason Cobb, Brock Martin, Jason Taylor the second. They lost a lot on both sides of the football from the end of the season last year to where they're at. And you think about, too, where this team was two years ago. I mean, 12-2, and last year, they kind of fell all the way to a very inconsistent 7-6, and and they got to replace some of those key headliners that I already described. Man, it's going to be difficult. So, as a result, Mike Gundy had to go out and hit the transfer portal really hard, especially in search of some playmakers because of all the guys they lost, they had to go out and get aggressive in trying to figure out who's going to be the people that they're going to replace. And most notably, they had to replace a defensive coordinator that I'm not sure a lot of people knew about. We've documented what his career and trajectory have looked like in the past. But if you're unfamiliar with Brian Nardo, check out one of our previous episodes we detailed his entire journey from the d2 ranks to now leading a proud defense that has been proud for quite a while we got to figure out a little bit when we watch oklahoma state this year what is this defensive scheme going to look like because you look at what brian nardo did at gannon college what is he going to do at oklahoma state i don't know i mean we really need to kind of evaluate is he going to be a little bit like jim knowles in a sense that he's going to attack and he's going to try to dictate and he's going to try to be aggressive with his pressure packages to force the opposing quarterback into becoming uncomfortable. Or is he going to play a little bit more passive like some of the other teams in the Big 12 to make sure they limit big plays and they keep the ball in front of them? Going to be really fascinating to find that out. The good news is you got Nardo, who of course is probably as interesting of higher as there was this entire offseason, but they were able to go up and they were able to get Alan Bowman to finish his career in Stillwater. He was at Texas Tech. He went to Michigan. With the quarterback situation being such an uncertainty, going out and having depth at that position is significant. Of course, quarterback competition ongoing, but at least you get a veteran guy that's familiar with the league and that has been coached by an excellent quarterback coach in Jim Harbaugh at the University of Michigan the last year or two. So will it be Alan Bowman that ultimately succeeds Spencer Sanders? That's probably the question I'm looking at most beyond what the defensive structure might look like under new defensive coordinator Brian Nardo. All right, UCF steps into the Power Five for the first time. They're now a member of the Big 12, and Gus Malzahn is coming off of back-to-back nine-win seasons. He also has a nice, solid nucleus of offensive weapons to rely on. John Rice Plumley returns, and two of his top three wide receivers are back as well in Kobe Hudson and Javon Baker. Along the offensive line, they have to replace four starters, so that's less than ideal, but they brought in four transfers, some of which might ultimately be immediate day one difference makers. They're also have to replace both coordinators, which to me with UCF, look, Gus Malzahn's a great offensive mind, but 
I think it's going to be interesting. How much did they adjust? How much did they adapt? Because this offense at times last year was extremely dynamic. Chip Lindsey, formerly the offensive coordinator, he's now at North Carolina. So they bring in Darren Hinshaw. Darren Hinshaw has been well-traveled. He's been all over the place. So it'll be interesting to see, does he implement that quarterback run game style that Gus Malzahn has used so successfully in his time at both UCF or in his time at Auburn? I would think that that's most likely going to be the case, but we shall see exactly what the offensive is going to look like. And then on defense, you have to replace Arkansas-bound Travis Williams. Go and do so with Addison Williams. So you look at both coordinators, and they've both been around Gus Malzahn recently. Look, he was at UAB at times, Hinshaw was, but he's had some moments at Cincinnati and other places where he's been able to score an awful lot of points. They have a bunch of experience back on both sides of the ball. And I do think the spring will be a very important time for Gus Malzahn to continue to adjust and adapt to the new league. We know UCF has had a run of terrific success in the American Athletic Conference. I actually think they're well positioned to be able to jump right into the Big 12 and be competitive. Now, to what extent will they be competitive? I'm not sure. At the moment, I'm not sure about any of the newcomers to the Big 12. I think that BYU, Cincinnati, UCF, and Houston all have talent, but do they have the depth to be able to play alongside some of the teams that have been building from a depth standpoint for a number of years? That's where we would love to try to figure these things out. Look, Gus Malzahn understands the task at hand. He understands the league that he's walking into, and he has done, I think, a pretty good job in his first two years at UCF. Now, where does he go from here? It's going to be very interesting. All right, the Alabama Crimson Tide are taking the field this week as well. A whole host of question marks surrounding Alabama this year. Now, question marks, I think, like we've talked about with other programs, sometimes question marks and opportunity is good. Sometimes there's addition by subtraction. Sometimes depth and comp uh, competition within the roster is an excellent thing. And I have said from the beginning, some people have agreed, some people have disagreed. I think Nick Saban made excellent coordinator hires this past offseason. Tommy Reese and Kevin Steele on offense and on defense respectively are going to reignite this group in trying to become as as physically as physical as humanly possible and I think they're well on their way. Let's start with Tommy Reese in the offense. Clearly, in the midst of a quarterback competition, we know exactly what that's going to look like. It's Ty Simpson, Jalen Milrow, maybe it's a freshman, something that we'll keep a very close eye on. I would think it's probably a little bit unlikely that it's going to be a freshman. We've seen a true freshman start for Nick Saban in the past, but it was Jalen Hurts. It was 2016, and it was at that point, probably because some of the veteran guys in front of him really just weren't very talented and really weren't very good. So Jalen was insert as a, as a result in 2016 as kind of a, a lesser of many evils. He ended up having a terrific year and got better and better and better as the season went along there as a true freshman. But I still think with where they're going offensively, they're probably going to rely on a veteran. I think at this moment, it's probably most likely to be Ty Simpson, but we shall see. Tommy Reese comes over from Notre Dame. If you are unaware of what Notre Dame is offensively, if you are unaware of what Tommy Reese is as an offensive coordinator, I'll tell you this. The guy 
just wants to pound you. It's as simple as that. If you look at his offensive philosophy at Notre Dame, they did a great job of establishing the line of scrimmage. They did a great job of developing offensive linemen. They had tight ends that were willing to contribute in the run game, but also at times were key weapons for the Irish's passing attack. I think Tommy Reese was limited the last year or two at the quarterback spot. No disrespect to Drew Pine. I think he's a very solid player, but I don't think he has the same type of internal talent as some of the guys he'll be working with at Alabama. So I think that this is going to be a run game that wants to feature the play-action pass with a back to the defense and an offensive line that will be empowered. The last few years at Alabama, dating all the way back to 2016, they have incorporated a little bit more of an RPO passing attack, meaning it was a little bit more predicated off of RPO, and it's a little bit more prioritized as far as throwing the ball all over the yard. That takes away from offensive line development, and I think that that also takes away and changes the way you practice. The one year in which they really tried to incorporate a super physical downhill rushing attack was in 2020. They ended up going that year to win the national championship. Now, Mac Jones, Devontae Smith, all the guys on that team, yeah, they could certainly throw it over the yard, but Najee Harris and that offensive line, Najee Harris, one of the best backs in college football that year, that offensive line won the Joe Moore Award. They were really the stars of the show. And they used the run to set up the pass, and that has not been the case as much in most of the last handful of seasons. I think they'll get back to that, and I think it starts in the spring with what will likely be the most physical spring that Alabama's offense has faced in the last handful of years. Moving to the defensive side of the football, Kevin Steele comes down. I think part of the reason why Kevin Steele was hired is because of his familiarity with the defensive system. Look, people have said, I don't know about that hire. I'm not so sure. The numbers weren't great at Miami. Not exactly had a tremendous run. People have pointed to what happened 10 years ago when he was the defensive coordinator at Clemson. Throw all that, all the, all, throw all that out with the, with the baby, man. That does not matter. Here, here's what really matters. Nick Saban knows how a defense is supposed to look. He knows how he wants it run, and he doesn't want to teach someone on the job. So he went out and hired someone that he has complete trust in to be able to identify where this team can improve and to identify where this team can adjust. They have some star players along the front. Dallas Turner returns. They have some other key pieces along the interior that they are very optimistic about, including Jaheim Oates, who might be 370 pounds of all muscle. Whatever he is, the guy's unbelievable. Was a little overweight early in his career, but has been getting better and better and better. And at 350 or some odd pounds, he could be a guy that takes over the game from the interior of the defensive line. Going to have to replace a couple key pieces in the second level, but they have athleticism at that spot. And they will definitely miss a couple of safeties, including Brian Branch, who I thought was probably their most versatile weapon in the back end in the last handful of years. Alabama, I would say that this is one of the most important springs of the Nick Saban tenure. To get back to running the football, to get back to creating an edge along the line of scrimmage, and to identify playmakers on defense that could potentially take over the game. So very excited about this spring for Alabama. I think the urgency should be at an all-time high, knowing that they could definitely, if they can get back to doing what they've done in the past, they'll be in the mix for yet another national championship. All right, lead into the bold prediction for Alabama. They will win the SEC West and will make it back to the CFP. As of right now, I would say that they are the favorite in the SEC West. Now, 
It's no denying that the national championship, the course to the national championship, it runs through Athens, Georgia right now. They've won two in a row. They bring back a whole host of playmakers as well, but they have some key pieces that they need to replace along both sides of the football. But either way, I think Alabama, when you look at how things line up, they host, they they have to go to Texas A&M, but they host LSU. They have some tricky games, and we all know that playing against Tennessee, it'll be in Tuscaloosa. These will be some very difficult spots, but Alabama should based on how things line up right now, be favored in every single regular season game. Now, ultimately, will they win every regular season game? That's to be determined. But they should be in a good position to get to Atlanta yet again and to take their chances against what should be an elite Georgia team. And in order to win a national championship, get back to the college football playoff, they got to beat them. They've had a great track record of being able to do that the last, gosh, 10 years with the exception of the last two. So now... With the newfound emphasis on the line of scrimmage, with the newfound emphasis on trying to create balance offensively, will things adjust for the better for Alabama this year? I think that's something we're all anxious to see. All right, let's head up the road just a little bit. Let's head up the country road to do West Virginia. Now, spring practice starts this week as well. And Neil Brown, a lot of people are kind of up in arms about, you know, is he the right guy for the job? Is he going to be the guy long term? Well, we're going to find out. Last year, it was not what you want 116th in scoring defense they give up nearly 43 points per game and nearly six and a half yards of play in their losses they lose their quarterback and JT Daniels but a lot of people self-included I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over JT Daniels no longer being available I think the big thing for Neil Brown this offseason he's got to figure out the defense just absolutely has to so he kept coordinator Jordan Leslie, but he added a couple of Mac defensive backs in corner Montre Miller and Keyshawn Cobb from both Kent State and from Buffalo, respectively. Will they be able to lock guys down on the perimeter? That's something that we will try to figure out. I think Jordan Leslie has got to figure out who are the guys along the defensive front that I can rely on because that was probably the most disturbing thing is they had a guy, one of the Stills brothers was still there last year, and yet he couldn't make the difference maker that become the difference maker that he was always bound to become. They had some ups and downs. They had some challenges. They also lose their offensive coordinator in Graham Harrell to Purdue, but they promoted the run game coordinator, Chad Scott, from within. Hopefully, they'll be able to get the thing going offensively as well. It'll be interesting to see how the quarterback derby shakes out. If I had to pick right now, I would think Garrett Green is probably the front runner, but you have a couple of good receivers on the outside to also lean on as well. Devin Carter and Deshaun Pope and tight end Cole Taylor all should be in a position to produce immediately. Cole Taylor being the transfer from LSU, it'll be interesting to see how he factors in to what should be a newfound emphasis on balanced attack offensively. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code FIRSTTAKE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more, more than, than ever. ever. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to gamble responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. This U.S. promotional offer not available in D. 
D.C., Mississippi, North Carolina, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 for New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. For Massachusetts, 1-800-327-5050. For Iowa, 1-800-BETS-OFF. For Puerto Rico, 1-800-981-0023. For West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. First bet offer for new customers only. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. In partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. All right, getting into your mailbag questions now. We've so appreciated all the different questions you've sent to us. We're continuing to check off these boxes, so keep sending them in. Always collegefootball at gmail.com, or you can submit any of your mailbag questions to always CFB on both Instagram and on Twitter. So Jack is constantly monitoring those things, and we keeps putting them into the queue. And when we feel like it's appropriate, we get that into the show as soon as humanly possible. So just ask the question. We promise we'll get to it, whether it be today, tomorrow, this week, next week, or at some time in the future, we will get to it. So Coobs, kick it off. All right. First one comes from Jake in South Carolina. He says, growing up, constantly being surrounded by Clemson fans, I've always argued that if Clemson were to play Tennessee's schedule every year, they would have never become an elite program. How would Clemson fare in a schedule where they play Florida, Alabama, and Georgia year in and year out? Well, I think it's so funny when these questions get asked. I mean, it's just, first of all, it's the ultimate hypothetical. Uh, Two, we've seen Clemson play against Georgia. We've seen Clemson play against Texas A&M. We've seen Clemson play against Alabama. We've seen Clemson play against top-tier competition. What? How many different years? It's not like Clemson's ever shied away from playing a big-time opponent in the non-conference. Like, no, Clemson's a anytime, any place, let's ride. They play Notre Dame regularly. I mean, Clemson, to me, have they benefited from the ACC being somewhat gettable? Sure. I mean, do you want them to apologize for that? Is it their fault that Boston College has fallen off a cliff the last couple of years? Is it Clemson's fault that the other teams in their league haven't been able to keep up? No. I mean, Clemson has set the standard for the ACC as far as their football product is concerned. Now, would they have the same record if they played in the SEC? I can't answer that because I look at ACC, SEC matchups on a week-to-week basis. They have them, what, four of them in the final week of the college football season every year. It's not like the SEC is winning every one of those games every year. It's not the case. So I think it just depends on the season. There have been some Clemson teams that would handle anyone you put on their schedule. And there'd be other Clemson teams that probably wouldn't play as well because they have too many inconsistencies on the offensive or the defensive side. So to answer your question, I think Clemson's a really good program, and they'd be a really good program in the SEC. They'd be a really good program in the Big Ten. They'd be a great program in the Big 12, and they'd be a great program in the Pac-12. Maybe that's copping out, but I think it's the only appropriate way to answer the question. 
It is the only appropriate way to answer a hypothetical question. Well done. Next one from John in Boulder. Why are college football non-conference matchups made so many years in advance? I know it's, quote, always been done that way. That's no excuse. How does the sport escape the decade-ahead schedule model, and will it change with more conference realignment? John, we're on the same page, man. Like, I, I think this whole, oh, well, we'll let's play a home-and-home in 2034 and 2036, I, I think it's absurd. Uh, I really do. Because you don't want, you don't even know who's going to be good 10 years out. I use Baylor as an example. When I was coming out as a recruit in 2006, Baylor was atrocious. I mean, I'm talking absolutely horrendous. Maybe win a game, maybe two a year. I mean, they were one of the worst teams in America. So as a result, way on down the road, they scheduled a very manageable schedule in an effort to boost their win-loss record. Fast forward to 2014, guess what? Baylor's a national championship contender, and yet their non-conference was still pathetic because I think when they made the schedule, they weren't necessarily a national championship contender. So it ultimately kept Baylor out of the national championship picture because their schedule was so weak and it was used against them when people were making arguments on their behalf. We need to be able to get rid of all of this because if there's one thing that COVID year of 2020 taught us is that we can make games happen overnight. Last time I checked, Coastal Carolina and BYU didn't have each other on the schedule, but one of the teams had a week off. One of the teams that they were playing against had COVID. Hey, you guys want to play this weekend? Sure, let's make it happen. You fly to Myrtle Beach, let's have a day. Like We learned that we can be flexible we learned that we can get things done in a timely enough manner. So I'm with you 100%, John. I appreciate the question. If we could just get rid of the scheduling way out in advance, it would benefit us significantly. I wish, to be honest with you, in a perfect world, I wish the third place team in the Big Ten would play the third place team in the SEC, would play the third place team in the ACC, would play the third place team in the Big 12 and the Pac-12 or what have you. Like I wish we could have an NFL scheduling model where you play a team that was similar as far as how they finished the year before. That would give us a better understanding of conference supremacy. That would give us a better understanding of who should make the playoff at season's end. It should give you a better grasp of which conferences are legit and which conferences are not. So I wish we could go year to year based on how you performed the year before. But these things are unlikely to happen because that would require people in power to relinquish power and that's not something I ever anticipate. One more thing to add on to that. Then you get the games that are canceled. See Georgia, Oklahoma this year, Ohio State, uh, Washington. So you build your hopes up and then they just get canceled anyway. All right. Last question here. Allen in Georgia. This is a good one. How many years do you think it will take before there is an NIT version tournament in football? This would involve teams ranked 13 through 25. Would a tournament between these teams be more compelling because there would be a much higher chance for the 25 seed to win than the 12 seed to win the CFP? I love the idea. I mean, the problem is, full disclosure, I don't really enjoy the NIT either. And I think the one reward you get from the NIT is you get the opportunity to play in Madison Square Garden. All right, that's that's awesome, right? That's really cool. That's great. But, I mean, you're, it's still a consolation tournament. And back in the day, it wasn't. No, back in the day, the NIT was, NIT was huge. But that's obviously changed drastically. And I just don't envision 
Look, we've already expanded the playoff to 12. I don't envision the Bulls relinquishing any additional power. Bulls are still extremely important. Bulls are still extremely profitable. Bulls are really good for the communities that they occupy. Bulls do a lot of good. So I think obviously you put the NIT model into place and guess what? Bulls are completely dead at that point. So I can't envision a scenario in which they would go that far, but it would be kind of cool, especially considering some of the smaller schools that would likely get opportunities in an NIT formatted system for college football. All right, Florida State and Georgia Tech are officially kicking off the 2024 season in Dublin, Ireland. Now, we've seen Notre Dame and Navy go over there. We've seen Northwestern and Nebraska go over there. That was just this past year. Do you like seeing games played internationally? Because I, I got to admit, like I have zero desire to go and play a game in Dublin, Ireland and then fly home and feel jet-lagged for the next three days. I don't have any desire to do that. Now, I know those games are played week zero. I love having a big game to look forward to on week zero, and I have no problem whatsoever with the television networks figuring out a way to make it happen. But explain to me this. How does that game help you? How does it help you? Remember what Northwestern's record was last year? Yeah, 1-11. It caught this game in Dublin, Ireland, cost Scott Frost's job. I mean, I want to know, unless there's something I am unfamiliar with, maybe there are recruits abound in Dublin, Ireland, but that would be news to me. Okay. Like, I'm Irish. I played college football. All right. I get it. But like, I don't think you're going and playing a game in a foreign country in an effort to put your program on a platform. You can play that game in Atlanta and guess what? There's going to be more recruits at the game in Atlanta than there's going to be in Dublin, Ireland. And you play it on week zero, it's still probably going to capture a pretty big audience because ultimately the TV audience is all it's about. Like, are you trying to grow your brand in Ireland? You're not the NFL. There's 32 teams in the NFL. So them going to Munich, them going to Mexico City, them going to London... All that makes sense because they're trying to become an international brand. Like, is Georgia Tech or Florida State, are they going to become an international brand because of this game? Like, no. Why? Because the numbers don't reflect the importance of the game over there. I'm not saying there's not an appetite for college football in England. There is. There's a ton of expats. There's a, In Europe, that is. There's a ton of expats over there in that part of the world that love college football and would love to go to a game. That's why I always find it comical when you see a game in London or you see a game in Dublin or you see a game somewhere else. Like It'll be at Florida State against Georgia Tech. You'll see three Tennessee jerseys, a Maryland jersey, a Texas jersey, all these random fan bases decide to go up because they hadn't seen a football game in a really long time. So I think it's cool in that regard. I just don't think it benefits you in the long term. Play your games domestically. Let's take care of here first. <laughs> as far as your actual recruitment of players. I think it helps you a lot more if you play it here in your own backyard. But I digress. Maybe I'm an old Scrooge. And if I were a kid playing, I think it'd be pretty cool to go to Dublin till the flight home. But I digress. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. We hope you've had a wonderful, wonderful day. Thanks again for spending it with us. For Mark Kubiak and Jack Foster, I'm Greg McElroy. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out. 
We really appreciate all the interaction we've gotten from you so far. Our numbers continue to grow. We continue to grow as far as our streaming stuff is concerned. Our podcast numbers are concerned. Continue to tell your friends, too, about all the fun stuff we're talking about here on Always College Football. So that'll do it for us. Please continue to check in. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.